Morning, everybody. Could I ask you to reach for a Bible, please, and turn to page 1144, 1144. Or if you're in your own Bible, that should be 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm sure it's been pointed out before that this pulpit was made for small men. So uh, forgive me if I'm slightly stooped uh, at any point uh, in the next little while. But page 1144, we're gonna, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at um, some of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and into the start of chapter 2 together as we begin our time. Um, I'm going to save most of my comments about the vacancy for the church meeting afterwards, so if you're possibly able to stay for that. Um, I don't think we're going to be here too long. I know those are famous last words for anyone to say, but there's no particular reason. It slightly depends how many questions you ask and comments you make, but uh, there's no particular reason why we should be here for more than 15 or 20 minutes for that meeting. I hope. So if that gives you some reassurance and uh, bolsters the sense that uh, John gave us, that the children won't disrupt us in that time. He is a a man of faith, I think. Uh, But we can uh, certainly bear with one another in that. Let me pray and then read God's word to us. Father, you yourself tell us that we can only know you and understand you by the work of your spirit in our life. And so we pray that he might be with us now, that we might know you speaking to us, opening our minds to understand your word, opening our hearts to receive it, and shaping our wills that we may live and think and do our ministry as a church in the light of it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord when i came to you brothers i didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as i proclaimed to you the testimony about god 
For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Be great help if you could keep that open uh, in front of you as we work our way through it together. It's been said that ours is a society that worships power and lots of the things that we strive for in life, whether they're money, fame, status, influence, or all of them in just different ways, uh, a thirst, a veiled thirst for power. And uh, you'll be able to see that lust for power in politics and public life. Uh, You'll be able to see it in the way that people who only a few days ago, I'm not trying to be political, but thought that Boris Johnson was the worst man on earth, now are lining up so that to support him in the hope that they can get a job in his cabinet if he does indeed win the, uh, the election for the leader of the Tory party. You see it in politics, you see it in public life, you see it in businesses and institutions. And it's no surprise that you see it in, in the church as well, on the, the wider front. There are ecclesiastical power struggles, there are denominational politics, there are parachurch organizations who seek to build empires, there are ministers who run church like it's a dictatorship, and elders who think that their own will should be sacrosanct. Even the, the pulpit is not immune from this power Game. John Stott used to say that the pulpit is a very dangerous place for any child of Adam to stand. Because every time any preacher gets to their feet, they need to ask the question, am I speaking because I seek God's greater influence over the people in front of me or my own? Let me read you an alarming comment he made on the, the, the Bible-believing, the evangelical church in the UK. This was in 2000, after 55 years of public ministry. He said, I want to tell you frankly that I'm scared of the contemporary evangelical hunger for power, even the quest for the power of the Holy Spirit. Be honest. He asked, why do we want to receive power? Is it honestly power for witness, power for holiness, power for humble service? Or is it really a mask for personal ambition so that we may boost our own ego, minister to our own self-importance, extend our influence to impress, to dominate, to manipulate? He said the lust for power can be a very dangerous thing. Maybe some of you have experienced that in churches in the past, in different parts of the world. I'd love to know what you think of that, what your own experience has been afterwards. But whatever uh, our take on the church of our day, that love of power was definitely very popular within Corinthian society. In their case, it was combined with a love of wisdom and of rhetoric Because while in our days it's comedians and musicians and sports people who sell out stadia, back then it was often orators who would dazzle crowds and gain a following for their fine-sounding arguments and clever speech. And that love of power and wisdom wasn't just out there in society, it had infected the church as well and their life and their worship 
and their ministry. God had begun a, a good work in them. But in Corinth, something very dangerous was happening. Christ on the cross was beginning to slip from center stage of the life of the church. I guess we can see how that would happen. If your core values, your core heart values as a society, a power and wisdom, well, you're not going to have a lot of room for a king who chose to die in agony on a cross and who now calls you to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. They were trying to have a form of Christianity that set aside the need for suffering in that way. It all sounded far too weak and far too foolish. So if the Corinthians had been looking for a new minister, you can be sure that they would want a a dynamic and visionary leader to come amongst them, someone who had made a name for himself, someone who would be considered a real catch for the church and put them on the map of the Christian scene around the place. He would probably have had, this is no disrespect to anyone with a PhD among us, I'm sure he would have had a PhD from a very reputable academic institution. He would be widely respected within the theological academy. He would project an image of power and of strength and of success and health and wisdom. And Paul is writing deliberately to try and cut the legs out from under that mindset in this letter and specifically in our passage There are three mini sections in the passage. They show how at every turn, God works in ways that our power-hungry world will consider weak and foolish, but ways in which in reality are far wiser and far more powerful than anything our world has ever known. In due course, we'll come to the foolish weakness of the church and the foolish weakness of the preacher. But I'd like to begin, if we may, in verses 18 to 25, with the foolish weakness of the cross itself. The foolish weakness of the cross. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, In our own generation, we've domesticated and sanitized the symbol of the cross by embalming it in stained glass windows and dangling it around our necks. And so it would be easy to forget that in the first century, it was a, a symbol of shame, of scandal, and a form of execution reserved for just the worst of criminals. The writer Cicero famously said that the very word cross should be removed not only from the person of every Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. We want nothing to do with a cross. One of the the first pieces of uh, Christian graffiti, satirical Christian graffiti that's been uncovered, was a a cartoon uh, on the side of a building. It depicted Jesus as a half-man, half-donkey, dying on a cross while a man paid homage to him. And the little inscription read, Alexamenos worships his God. If you've got all of the power in the universe at your disposal, why would you choose to die like a criminal? Where would be the wisdom in that? Where is the power? Where's the victory? 
And still today, you'll know that to say you're a Christian in our society is increasingly like announcing to the world that you have some unmentionable disease. Uh, if you don't believe me, just uh, go on the Guardian website anytime and read the, the comments at the bottom of any article that even vaguely pertains to Christianity. And the, the cross is reserved for special disdain. For the, the Christian, that there is no truth more precious than that Jesus went to the cross to die in our place and to take the punishment that we deserve for the ways in which we've turned against God. But to many, that idea is laughable. Um, atheists, theologians, even some who call themselves evangelical Christians reject the idea out of hand. It's cosmic child abuse, they say. It's barbaric. But here we're told that it was always God's plan to act in a way that would level the playing fields between the intellectual haves and the have-nots. Verse 19, he says, uh, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Those three groups in verse 20 have in common that they're considered prime examples of human wisdom. But it was always God's plan to frustrate the arrogance of those who think that they can work him out, work out life and get to know him by means of their own intelligence. God is not anti-intellectual. Paul is not uh, saying he wishes that everybody was stupid. But he is saying that there is no place for the academic snobbery that means that you can only know God if you've got three degrees and published all over the place. G.K. Chesterton used to refer to the doctrine of sin as the, the doctrine of the equality of man. And Paul's point is that uh, the ground in front of the cross is level. doesn't matter if you're a professor or a janitor, whether you're rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. There's no pecking order. There is no hierarchy. Because God will deliberately frustrate any who are so wise in their own eyes that they think that they can reject the cross. But by contrast, all who believe that word of the cross, he will save. Uh, some people still today, like the Jews of verse 22, want a demonstration of power before they'll believe. Just perform a miracle, God, then I'll believe. Others, like the Greeks of verse 22, want a, a knockdown philosophical argument and proof before they'll believe. But the only message we have is that of Christ and him crucified. And some will think it weak, so weak and foolish that they'll never give it a second look. But verse 24, to those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than human strength. Let me press pause on this truth for a moment and urge us to beware adding to the message of the cross ever 
or by trying to, to jazz up the way that we proclaim it, thinking that that might make it more attractive in the world's eyes. I'm not talking about those who, in particular who would change the message itself, but about the temptation to change the manner of its delivery to try and make it more attractive. I think it, it comes from an understandable desire. We see a world that is rejecting Christ, and we think if we could just find someone with a really world-class brain, or with millions and millions of followers on social media, or a really famous sports person, or someone who's rich, or someone who's had a really dramatic testimony, and we could just get them to preach the gospel, then maybe the whole world might find it more credible and believe. We forget that the reason that not everyone believes is that God deliberately designed his gospel to be divisive and unattractive even to those who are wise in their own eyes. You remember that Jesus performed hundreds of miracles, that his wisdom confounded every critic, and still they crucified him. Paul too performed so many miracles that one town thought he was God and started trying to worship him. On top of that, he had the original Damascus Road testimony. Uh, It was the most exciting story going. But still, he was driven out of town after town after town. And we need to accept that the world will always deride the cross. And we need to resist the temptation to put the word of the cross in, in fancy dress to try and make it more attractive to our age. Because though the world will always reject it, we know that the word of the cross is mighty to save. And that when those whom God has called hear it, they won't say what folly, what weakness. They'll say what a savior, because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So much for the message. Paul moves on to talk about the Corinthians himself. And again, his point is that God doesn't work through power and wisdom. The foolish weakness of the church is our second heading. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, those of of no standing at all, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I don't imagine the verses need much explanation. The the Corinthians were becoming proud and puffed up. They thought that they'd worked it out, that they had this great knowledge about God. They thought they had all the spiritual gifts that were needed, that they'd arrived already, that they were kings. The irony of the whole thing, says Paul, is that God's whole purpose in choosing them was to make it impossible for anyone to boast. It's a famous um, lady from church history, a woman called Selina Hastings. She was the, the Countess of Huntingdon, an amazing woman who bankrolled the ministry of George Whitfield uh, by paying for the work that he was doing for many years. She used to say of verse 26 that she was saved by a single letter. See if you can work out what it is as you glance down. She said, if Paul had said, not any of you were of wise or influential or noble birth, she could never have become a Christian. She was saved by the letter M. Of course, it's not impossible for someone of noble birth to be a Christian. 
It's not often how God does his work. He's not in the habit of saving people who might turn around and say, isn't God very lucky to have me on his team? Most of the time he saves people who think, why on earth would he have loved me? That's what he'd done in in Corinth. Uh, Before they heard the message of the cross, very few people in Corinth had been bigwigs in the world's eyes. But there was this deliberate ploy of God to undermine the values of the world. And so he saved those who were the opposite of what the world exalts. And that's still how he tends to work today. When people ask me what our church in St. Andrews is like, I say, well, we're really very ordinary. Very few of us are rich or successful or beautiful. We are not from the top table of St. Andrew's life. Uh, When the big glitzy events happen in St. Andrew's, we're not the people who are invited. Uh, When the media comes to report something, we're not the story. We are a church of those who are not rather than those who are. And sometimes we might be tempted to think, oh, do you know, if only we had a few more professors in our midst or a few more really important people from St. Andrew's life, if only we had a few really successful golfers who wanted to be in our congregation, then, then we could really make a difference in society. That is not the way that God usually does his work. He saves the lowly so that we do not boast in ourselves, but rather in the one who saved us. You see that in verse 30? It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Pride is such a a foolish sin for a Christian or for a church. We're not saved. We're not gifted. We don't grow to a big size because of anything that we've done it is all because of him god is the one who brought us into union with christ it's because of him that we now experience the benefits of being united in christ why are we given a share in the wisdom of god as we feed on christ why is christ's righteousness given to us credited to us why are we redeemed from our sin why are we sanctified set apart for god and his service and the answer is not because of us it is not because of us it is all because of christ and therefore as jeremiah the quotation from him says if we're going to boast we don't boast in ourselves or our church but in christ our Lord. You'll see how Paul is undercutting the the arrogant mindset that was causing so many problems in Corinth, that was causing so much division in the church. How is it possible to look down on another Christian when only five minutes ago you were precisely nothing in the world's eyes? That's his argument. How is it possible to look down on others who are maybe less gifted than you when every gift you have is now from God. He's saying you weren't saved by yourselves. You weren't saved by your Christian leaders. You were saved by Christ alone, and therefore you boast in him alone. 
can't remember if on a previous visit to St. Peter's, I've told you about a time over 20 years ago when um, a Christian leader on a summer camp just prayed for some camps. I was on a camp about 20 years ago, and a Christian leader, senior guy, said to me, asked me if there was anything in particular that I was struggling with in my Christian life at the moment. We went on one of those long walks, and this was the, the big moment of the, the, the time when he asked me, and I said, oh, I don't you never want to say anything that's too revealing, do you? So you, I had to come up with something, and so I said, rather sheepishly, but honestly, pride. And his reaction was great, because he said, really? Of, of all people and of all things, I never imagined that you would struggle with pride. Not the most pastorally sensitive uh, answer that he, he might have given me, I suspect, but it was just what I needed to hear. It's so ludicrous, isn't it? How could a Christian ever be proud? How could a church ever be proud? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, we're learning that God's purpose is to subvert the standards of a world that exalts power and wisdom. And so he saves foolish and weak people through a foolish and weak gospel that is spoken by foolish and weak preachers. It's our third point, the foolish weakness of the preacher. Chapter 2, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, says Paul, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Um, I was speaking at a mission event down in Cambridge for the Christian Union, and after the, one of the talks I'd given, one of the, a, a Christian leader who was there came and, and said to me afterwards, um, you know, with some speakers we've had at these kind of events in the past, we're, we're blown away by them. And we think, wow, you're amazing. You've got an incredible brain. And we could never give the kind of talks that you give. And then he said, we don't think that when you, when you preach. And uh, I, still, I still don't know if it was meant to be a compliment. But it, it strikes me that Paul would have been very happy with a review like that. His, his game plan in Corinth was not to make people applaud him or praise him for his fine speech and his big brain. Actually, the thought of, of winning a fan club would have been horrible to him. He wanted people to have faith in Christ alone. And so he resolved when he was with them to ignore their love for clever speakers and to know nothing and to preach nothing except for Christ and him crucified. And we should register that the direct correspondence between the content and the manner of Paul's ministry. I think we're, we're pretty good generally, I'm sure, here at St. Pete's and within our sort of circles at weighing up the content of the, the preaching that we hear. If someone starts saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead or the cross isn't very important, I think we spot that as a mistake. I hope we do. My hunch, though, is that we often forget to weigh the manner of the preacher. But it should set off major alarm bells if we hear the message of a weak and crucified Savior delivered by someone 
who's projecting an image of strength and success. Uh, friends of mine, particularly in the States, but here too, have been told, oh, you could never be a minister. Why? Because they didn't have big, extrovert, dynamic CEO-type personalities. And the opposite has happened. Others have been told they definitely should go and become a minister somewhere because of the way that they project themselves. Big, strong, successful in the world's eyes kind of people, irrespective, actually, of whether or not they've got the gifts and the godliness that are required. Makes me wonder what folks would make of the Apostle Paul. Do you spot his his triple self-description in verse 3? Weakness, fear, and much trembling. There's nothing about Paul that would have given him great standing in the world's eyes. I'm sure he could have spoken with very flowing rhetoric. He was an, an educated and trained man. He just didn't want to. He was deliberately anti-Corinthian in that way. There was no one who would have put their confidence in him if he was the leader of their church. Or to put it differently, and I think this is the the key test for any Christian ministry from this passage, any would-be minister of of St. Peter's for that matter, that the power in Paul's ministry didn't come from the, the force of his personality or the weight of his rhetoric. It came entirely from the Spirit who took his weak words about a weak Savior and through that gospel worked in power to build the church. It strikes me as not how we always talk about the ministries we come across. It's one reason I wanted to look at this together today. Someone moves to a new town and we say, oh, you should definitely go to John's church because he's lovely or he's hilarious or he's a brilliant preacher. And I know what we're getting at, but when did you ever hear uh, someone advertising a Christian event by saying something like, oh, Matt's preaching So you should definitely invite your friends to come to church because he is weak and fearful and trembles all the time. Paul's weakness here is most likely not a besetting physical condition, I think, just a a preaching style that was very unimpressive in the world's eyes. Um, Fear and great trembling describes a, a preacher whose confidence is not in himself but in his message. And that was Paul, I think, come to... Church, here, Paul, he's got nothing to commend himself to us. But his message is straight from heaven. It is Christ and him crucified. Here then's a double question for any Christian ministry. Is it centered on the cross? And is the ministry fashioned after the cross? Both are important. Do they preach Christ and him crucified? And is their ministry cross-shaped? Because almost every minister says that they want to point away from themselves and onto Jesus. But do they actually? Where is the power? Is it in the leader? In the word of the cross? Where is the confidence of a congregation? In their leader? Or in the work of the word of the cross? Let me um, end by applying this very directly to the the vacancy here at St. Peter's. We've been looking back, and I was so thrilled that Crawford led us in this way again on 27 years of faithful Christian ministry here, the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. And after any lengthy and fruitful ministry like David's, as we begin to turn our eyes to the future 
and think about who might replace him as the next minister of St. Peter's. It'd be easy to think, oh, we want a carbon copy. We want someone who's just like David. Alternatively, people sometimes say, no, we should find someone as different as possible to David. The reminder to us this morning, if I can put it like this, and those of you who know him will know when I say that David would agree with me 100%, is that we shouldn't be thinking about David at all. We certainly shouldn't be looking for someone who's going to be really impressive in the world's eyes. The minister that St. Peter's needs is one who is completely unashamed to rely upon and to preach and to keep on preaching the simple word of the cross in weakness and with fear and great trembling, even though it makes him look really unimpressive in the eyes of the world. Because actually being weak in the the world's eyes is okay. That is how God does his work, through weak and foolish people proclaiming a weak and foolish gospel. The great paradox of this all, of course, is that that is exactly where the real power lies. Because God the Holy Spirit delights to take our weak words about our weak Savior and to use them to bring God's glorious salvation to more and more people. Our world craves power. The church sometimes craves power. We just need to be clear. It's not found by hiding away the cross or updating our message. It's not found by trying to hide our weakness away and pretend to be strong. That's just to, to accommodate to the values of the world around us. True power is found in the cross because God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the only hope for this city of Dundee. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank you once again for the clarity of your word and for your presence with us as we've looked at it. We want to say sorry for any times in which we've boasted in ourselves or in Christian leaders or put our confidence in them and relied upon them for the future rather than upon you and upon your Savior and the word of the cross. Spare us, please, from ever departing from the cross as individuals or as a congregation. Spare us from thinking we ever need to dress it up in fancy dress to make it attractive. May your values be our values. And we pray, as we will keep on praying, that you will bring to this congregation a man of God who is unashamed of Christ and him crucified and resolves to proclaim him and nothing but him in order to present many pure and spotless before him on the last day. We pray it all in Jesus' name.